Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to find out how to write better music. My guest today is Dr. Vanessa Cornette Murtada, who specializes in teaching piano and working with students who suffer from performance anxiety. In this episode, she shares her hypnotherapy techniques for retraining the brain to be less anxious, more creative, and more productive. Hypnotherapy works really well for procrastinators, because that's a hidden symptom of anxiety, by the way. We procrastinate doing what we're really just not sure we'll do really well, so it can help manage your time, or it can help with procrastination, things like that. Vanessa also shares her tips on what to do when you're in a mental rut as a composer. Sometimes just shifting your physical location or your emotion or the way you're sitting is a way of physically shifting your perspective. Because I think when we're in a rut of any kind, what we forget that we can do is shift our perspective. Without further ado, here's my talk with Vanessa Cornette Murtada. Well, Vanessa, thanks for coming over. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah. Maybe you could start off telling us a little bit about your background and what you do at St. Thomas in the music department. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a pianist. Um, I came to St. Thomas in 2007 to direct the keyboard program there, and I teach courses in piano, piano pedagogy, piano literature, things like that. I teach undergraduate students, but also grad students in our music ed program. Um, And my research interests usually center around contemplative practices, such as mindfulness meditation. creativity and what stimulates creativity in artists and creative musicians, um, improvisation. And I work with students and colleagues who um, struggle with performance anxiety. So performance anxiety management is a real interest of mine. Yeah, I'm sure that's pretty common in in the university setting too. Everywhere, everywhere. I'll, I'll never be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and not just musicians, but all performing artists, all humans, actually. Yeah. If you think of a broad definition of what it means to perform, a first date could be a performance. <laughs> a job interview could be a performance. So um, it's definitely ubiquitous, that's yeah. for sure. So what kind of general tips would you have for someone who's suffering from performance anxiety? You know, it's such a complex topic, and the more I learn about the human mind, the more more I realize how complex we are as humans. And that just teaches me that there aren't really tips until you really look at what's causing the anxiety. You know, um, some people are anxious people in general, and performance anxiety is just one way that that anxiety manifests. You know, maybe they're calm and collected in their job, but when they go to perform, the jitters happen. And so that's one scenario. There's another scenario where you have people who um, aren't anxious at all, but maybe had a trauma a long time ago, uh, maybe a bad performance experience or something happened. And so that comes up when they're performing. So what I like to do is talk to people. You know, I'm not a psychologist for sure, and I put that out there. Um, I've worked with some psychologists and sports psychologists and have learned a lot of things, but 
I think the the most important thing we as musicians can do is to be aware of what's happening when we're practicing and performing. I also think it's important that we learn mental skills as well as performance skills because unlike athletes, musicians tend to just hone their craft but don't really study what's going on in their mind, how they're thinking, um, how they're regulating their emotions, what they're aware of. Um, And so athletes have this long history and their coaches and their psychologists, they have this long history of studying the mind and what helps them reach a peak performance. Musicians, on the other hand, are behind the game, if you Mm. ask me. So I think a part of that's a long answer to your question, but I think a, a part of performance anxiety management is simply developing mental skills towards peak performance alongside musical skills, performance skills. Yeah. Well, and do you, I guess, like, performing music, you kind of want to conjure up certain emotions in yourself, but maybe there, is there a way to, like, channel your anxiety in some way, in some pieces? It's a great question, because... especially creative artists want to tap into certain emotions. So we don't want to shut off that part of us. We need to be open to certain uh, emotional responses, including the response we're having with the audience or the responses we want the audience to have. But we don't want to open the doors for every emotion to come through. So that's why um, sports psychologists call that emotion regulation, where you learn to channel, I think you said, or filter um, the positive emotions or the emotions that are helpful and not necessarily block out, because you can't really block those out, but to sort of ignore um, other emotions that could get in the way and hinder performance or creativity. Hmm. Yeah, I guess for me, I I don't perform out that much. Uh, so my performance lately has been like recording um, here in my studio, and sometimes I get in the block of like once I start playing something over and over, it doesn't have the same emotional meaning anymore. It's just like I'm just focusing on trying to hit every note, and that kind of locks me up. Right. Sometimes, yeah. I don't know. You know. Do you have ideas on what you can do if you're just like focusing too much on the the defects or flaws or something like that? Yeah, um, it's a good point because you know I know you've interviewed some um, music psychologists and people like that, and you know the brain scans of musicians who are improvising or just having fun look completely different from the brain scans of musicians who are practicing notated music written by someone else or practicing something over and over again in order to perfect it. And the the of course we have to be able to do both, but what happens I think when we get into the loop that you're describing is the part of the brain that's analytical and self-critical. And it's a really important part of the brain that musicians need to develop in order to hone their skills. But what happens is that part of the brain becomes dominant and it kind of overshadows the other part of the brain which is more active when we're improvising and that's sort of the risk-taking part of the brain the um, part that is willing to try new things or uh, go out on a limb or take chances and not worry about missed notes or doing it wrong or whatever so sometimes um, what happens if I'm practicing and, and what you're describing happens to me I will stop and try to shift my perspective Um, I'll try to think of something else. 
I'll try to have a different goal when I repeat. I'll stand up, sit back down and think, give myself a new prompt or a new stimuli, you know, something to get my brain working in a different way, just so I'm approaching it from a fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you were saying you kind of collaborated with the American Composers Forum to do uh, yeah. creativity and improv sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that yeah. Was a, that was a few years ago. That was maybe three or four years ago. And a colleague and I were invited to do a workshop on collaborative improvisation and I'm blanking on the title of our workshop but the the gist was how can we use collaborative improvisation to boost creativity to get out of a rut to just get new ideas and fresh new perspectives of our music and we this that's maybe the most fun I've had working with a group of musicians because we were working with um, composers mostly but also some pianists and the topic was (laughs) aleatoric collaborative improvisation so this is where you're working with another musician or a group of musicians you decide on a few parameters but you, but a very few parameters. We start by ignoring tonality and rhythmic structure, and we work only with extra musical gestures or prompts and just see what happens. So for example, it's fun to get two composers side by side on their instruments. We had a piano on stage, so we would put two composers side by side on a piano, and we would tell one, um, all right, what does purple sound like? You're going to be purple. And we tell the other one, you're going to be mashed potatoes, whatever. Because it's so ridiculous. If a mashed potato could sing, what would a mashed potato sound like? I don't know. But once you get out of the box of this has to be a phrase or it has to be in this tonality or I have to follow this set of uh, chord structures or whatever, you start to just listen to the gesture and the color and the sound. And you start to do what I like to to call um, thinking in sound. So we had a blast. And, you know, composers, as you know, are incredibly creative people anyway and they were so willing to take risks and have fun and and it's it can become a really hilarious sort of practice and then you just keep adding musicians and you start working with dialogue and you start working with um, more abstract concepts of philosophy you know what does remorse sound like or what does socialism sound like one of one of the composers um, we took a, a prompt from the audience and somebody shouted plaid And I thought, oh, there's no way. (laughs) And I'll tell you that this fellow sat down at the piano and he meditated for maybe 10 seconds and started to play these sort of angular, boxy, sustained chords. It was plaid. (laughs) It blew my mind because that's the way the creative mind works. It's just amazing. Cool. Do you remember offhand? uh, So you sent me a recording of piano and... French horn. I yeah, think. yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what those recordings, the prompts were? Or? Um, I don't, to be honest. Um, that's uh, the hornist is my colleague at St. Thomas, Dr. Sarah Schmallenberger, and she's just so much fun to work with. Sometimes we'll sit down and say, "Let's play," and that's it. Because we work together or not, we don't real enough. We don't really have to set those parameters. Um, often, though, we would say something like, "Hey, let's improvise on the second 
movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, but every other chord should be wrong. We'll do something like that. Um, I know that one of the prompts that I sent, the piece that I sent you, we said, what would it sound like to improvise a fugue? And so, of course, when you're out of the realm of tonality, it's, it's, um, it's hard to have a fugue subject. But we did sort of establish a rhythmic pattern, and we improvised a fugue and tried really hard not to laugh because it was so funny and so much fun. do things like that or we'll say uh, let's do a, a, a pirate song and that's it and we'll try to g- set up this sort of rocking sounding ridiculous uh, meter and just do something like that so it totally depends on our mood huh, cool <laughs> so do you, you improvise on piano um, often I do yeah All I right. do what kind of tips would you have for people who are maybe aren't that great at improvising or yeah yeah My first tip is that we're all great at improvising, and here's why. We improvise all the time, every day. Right now, you and I are improvising because we're having a conversation and it's not scripted. What we think we don't do well is improvise musically because we've been conditioned to think that there is a right or a wrong, that we have to be accomplished within a certain parameter or a certain style And that's just not true. So to answer your question, the first thing I do with somebody who says, I can't improvise or I don't like to improvise or please, 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 God, don't make me (laughs) improvise, is I plop them down at the piano or their instrument and say, okay, we're going to take tonality out of it. I just want you to play spicy. That's all I want. Think of what spicy means. I just want to hear spicy. And so then you start to work with sounds that are jagged or sharp or loud or abrupt without any tonality or rhythm. Then you start to apply more parameters, okay? And the easiest one to apply first is rhythm. You know, set up a pulse and say, okay, we're still taking tonality out of it, but now um, I want you to play plaid or I want you to be Lady Gaga or whatever, and we're going to set up this sort of parameter. And then you gradually add in tonality, maybe or maybe not. And it's to get, again, that part of the brain that's the risk taker, that's not critical, that's not saying, oh, it should have been a flat five and it wasn't, you know, just to take that out and to start listening mindfully to the colors and sounds and gestures that you're making. That's how I like to start. And I tell you, it's really hard for, for students and musicians who are trained musicians. The first thing they want to do is play chords. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I notice that if they are not confident improvisers, they sort of immediately box themselves in, into a corner. Well, let me use these three chords and see what I can come up with. So um, if that happens, I often will sit next to them and start to improvise just insane <laughs> crap that has no tonal basis at all to sort of inspire them. That's cool. The other day I was just sitting down at the piano and guitar and just trying to come up with new ideas for whatever composition and I do think I start in that box of like, well, this has to turn out to be something that I want to actually record someday or 
so I think sometimes what I I will do that just like don't worry about the tonality or anything at least to get my my brain primed and then eventually it might lead to something that if I think is maybe like more meaningful to record but but yeah that's the struggle is trying to get past the idea of like everything you improvise has to be meaningful or right. sound amazing or something right it's a great point and I think we can learn that from Ornette Coleman, right? Who realized that when he played a wrong note, he learned what was possible. Um, If you think about it, when we're in the zone, when we're improvising or composing or creating, and it's really sort of, we're in this flow state and everything is happening well, we are wholly in the present moment. What often happens with anxiety or creative blocks is we begin to be focused either in the past or in the future. But most creative musicians get focused in the future. Even if the future is five minutes, what is this recording going to sound like? Um, I have this deadline coming up. Um, this piece is not good enough for the performer I'm writing it for. But when you, as you mentioned, when you take out some parameters and just prime your brain, you start to anchor yourself in the present moment, which is where flow happens. It's very hard to be in the zone and focused outside of the present moment. And in fact, creative artists who get in that zone when they're performing or composing or whatever often lose track of time. They are so engaged in the present moment that the concept of linear time dissolves completely. And maybe this has happened to you. You look at the clock and it's three hours later and you just can't imagine where the time went. So again, that's where the sort of mindfulness practice is is so important because it's something we do anyway whether we think we do or not is sort of anchor ourselves in the present moment which if you think about it is where music occurs music is a sonic event that only happens in the present moment so it doesn't make any sense for us to be experiencing music in the present moment but our mind is somehow anchored in some imagined fear in the future hmm yeah that's a good perspective on it uh you just were making me think back to when I would kind of get in that flow state uh, back in college, and I'd be sitting at the piano for a super long time and then realize, like, more than anything, I would feel like I need a nap after. <laughs> like, for some reason, working on composing for a while would just, like, wear my brain out for a while. <laughs> I have a theory about that, actually. I think part of it is it is exhausting um, to use all of those creative energies, and then you really do need to just sort of have a blank slate. The other thing, though, is that when we're being very creative, the brainwaves that are most active are the alpha and theta brainwaves, which are much slower brainwaves than the active beta brainwaves, you know, when we're thinking or we're learning something new or we're really alert. So... Alpha is when we're really relaxed, almost meditating. Theta is when you're kind of, you could be half awake, half asleep. I actually call that the cat brainwave. If you've Hmm. ever seen a cat with their little eyes and they're kind of half asleep. Because we get in that slow brainwave and all of a sudden, I don't know why, because I'm not a neuroscientist, but all of a sudden these creative ideas, it's almost like the, the filter has opened and we get more of these ideas come through. And that's why a lot of creative people get their best ideas just as they're falling asleep 
Or in the middle of the night, they'll wake up. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. They'll be like, oh, I have a great idea for a tune. And if they don't write it down right away or sing into a tape recorder, they lose it. I think it's because we're so relaxed and those brainwaves are so slow and regular um, that it puts us in that sort of creative zone. Yeah. That's my theory anyway. I'm sticking <laughs> I like to it. it. Yeah. <laughs> And I've definitely had that experience of like waking up with a melody in my head and but it yeah, you're right, it just will vanish if I don't <laughs> record it. You think you'll remember it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I always um I keep uh, a journal and a pencil by my uh bedside and I used to keep a little recording device. Now, now I have my iPhone, but um it's really funny if you wake up in the middle of a dream or an idea and you just record yourself, even though the next day it'll sound garbled and hilarious and awful, there'll be a germ of something that you would have forgotten if you had just said, "Ah, I'll remember it tomorrow morning." And I think it's because because we're relaxed, the critical conscious mind is asleep, and the other sort of right brain creative parts of our mind are wide open and really active while we're sleeping, and it's great to sort of catch those moments if we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a class that you were teaching this summer that I, I missed out on, but it sounded really cool. It was on music in the mind kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What, what all did you cover in that? That was for the Salim Center. And basically what I did was I sort of summarized um, in two hours a course that I've taught before with a professor of neuroscience at St. Thomas called Music in the Mind, the Science of Musical Experience. And basically it's an honors course where um, I'm the musician and she's the neuroscientist and we sort of look at the different ways humans experience music. So what I did with this class that you're asking about is I just posed a number of questions, which I didn't really answer because some (laughs) of them don't have answers, but we talked about some of the mysteries of human experience. So, for example, um, we uh, spent a a good deal of time trying to define music, and that was really fun to do with a varied audience, some of whom were musicians and some weren't. So you can imagine that that was a um, kind of a fun challenge. We talked about are humans innately musical and why? Why did we evolve with music? And are humans the only living creatures who experience and respond to music? We talked about musical manipulation. How is it or why is it that we can be emotionally manipulated through political campaign ads and commercials and mm-hmm. um, movie soundtracks? How? What does that trigger in us? We talked about musical mysteries such as absolute pitch and synesthesia. And we talked about earworms, those song snippets that get stuck in your head. Why does that happen and what types of earworms are the most addictive? So basically, I set them up with a bunch of topics. We had fun discussing them. I'm not sure they went away with a lot of answers, but they probably went away with um, even more questions because a lot of these are mysteries and we can only speculate about them. But it was a really fun experience. I really enjoyed that class. Yeah. Hmm. So what kind of things did you talk about with the how music manipulates us? Uh, yeah, we talked a lot about music and cultural conditioning. So we talked about how in some cultures... There is no word in the language for musician because everybody sings, everybody dances to think that 
I'm a musician and you're not is like um, I'm a breather and you're not and you wish you could breathe as well as I could but <laughs> never will you aspire to be as great a breather as I am so we talked a lot about how music is a psychological construct for example scale structures tonal structures even concepts of major and minor so we are conditioned to a point um, as children to hear that major is happy and cheerful and minor is sad and gloomy but in other cultures that's not at all what those sounds mean. So we started from that point, thinking that if you're going to um, make someone feel happy and motivated, you're going to pick a, a song that's in a major key and has kind of triumphant rhythmic features and maybe something bright and warm like brass. And if you are um, doing a political campaign and you want to scare your viewer into thinking that this political candidate is going to ruin the world, then you're going to pick dark minor tonalities. You're going to pick a scare sort of angular patterns and almost the type of rhythmic patterns you would hear in a horror movie. And you can see these in the various political ads. So we basically, what I did is we looked at some political campaign ads. We sort of analyzed what music was planned to manipulate us into feeling good or bad. And we also looked at some movie clips with different music superimposed. So the clip that everyone uses when they study musical manipulation is the shower scene from Psycho. Mm -hmm. um, and you can actually go on YouTube and find the shower scene from Psycho with the music omitted. You see, still hear the shower. You still hear the shower curtain and the screams and the stabbing. But there's not those, you know, violins going, reek, reek, reek. That's all <laughs> taken out. And it's less scary. You watch it and you're like, oh, poor lady, she's being stabbed. Well, then I also found a clip of Jaws, the movie Jaws in the opening scene where the woman is out in the water and she gets sucked under. And it just so happens that this, whatever brilliant person did this, they took out the original Jaws music and superimposed Strauss's Blue Danube waltz oh. and some giggles. So it looks like she's swimming and having a great time and it's very funny and everybody was laughing and we realized that it's the music more than the image that either scares us or makes us um, feel a certain way. Yeah, I've thought about that a little bit recently in doing some film scores and uh, like a documentary score too. But yeah, it's interesting watching documentaries because they really can manipulate you in, in easy ways with the music, even though you might not notice it. That's right. And my favorite thing to do when I'm watching a movie is to suddenly become aware, you know, that there's music and to close my eyes and just listen and think, oh, I see what you're doing there. When I taught this class, um, I think the second time to a group of um, St. Thomas Honor students, one of the assignments was find a movie clip, any movie clip, um, and play it for the class first I think without the music and then with the music, I can't I can't remember what it was. And people brought in really wonderful movie clips. And the one that really struck me <laughs> was a scene from The Lion King, you know, with this soaring Hollywood music. But when you take out the music, it's just a bunch of lions romping around. And it's supposed to be this poignant, gut-wrenching, tear-jerking moment. And how ridiculous it was to watch a cartoon of these lions romping around when that's not what I was supposed to be feeling. So um, I, I, my husband loves horror movies. I hate horror movies. So when we go to a scary movie, every now and then, we just went to see The Conjuring 2, every now and then I'll close my eyes and I'll really 
really listen to the music and think, wow, I'm really being manipulated by this fabulous film score. And then I open my eyes and think, oh, well, that was a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was just watching Animaniacs, the Uh cartoon again. Yeah. Yeah. The music is just constant the entire episode. Yeah. That would be an interesting one to watch without. And it probably would feel so dead (laughs) it would feel dead and if you think of the old sitcoms laugh tracks are kind of the same i mean a laugh track for a show is a is a musical score and what's fun is to watch a show where the laugh track has been eliminated and it's not as funny the other fun thing to do is to see if you can laugh along and realize that this isn't really not that funny (laughs) yeah but in something like what you're describing where there's constant music I think sometimes we forget the power of silence and how how powerful that can be. And to me, some of the best improvisations, but certainly some of the best film scores, know when to use silence because sometimes silence is more deafening or even scarier when we're so used to being inundated by sound and music all the time that when there's nothing except your thoughts and what you're seeing, that can be pretty powerful too. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about hypnotherapy, because um, I don't really know too much about it, but I'm curious, like, what what kind of things can hypnotherapy help people with? That's a great question. So I got into hypnotherapy maybe 15 years ago because my mother was a hypnotherapist. Um, and so she passed away um, early on. And so I kind of wanted to follow in her footsteps. And so I, I just, I took the training. Um, it's actually pretty intense training. And then I realized, you know, in the first day, oh my gosh, this would be great for performance anxiety. And so that's actually what got me into the performance anxiety research um, because hypnotherapy is so great for so many things, but especially for different types of anxiety. So your question is, what can hypnotherapy help? Basically, I think the simple answer is any behavior you want to change. I think that's probably the simplest answer. So performance anxiety, smoking cessation, um, it's difficult with addictions because those are pretty powerful behaviors. Um, obsessive compulsive sort of behaviors because when you're in a state of hypnosis which is actually kind of the same state as when you're in the zone as a performer your critical conscious mind is kind of asleep but your subconscious is wide awake and the subconscious is very eager to listen and grab onto whatever it hears so if you hear um, suggestions when you're deeply deeply relaxed then those suggestions sort of stay with you the rest of the day and they'll pop into your conscious mind and they will actually help you decide what you want to do or feel or what you don't want to do and feel so for example if you and i were working together for let's say performance anxiety um and When I work with musicians, I try to find, you know, kind of a physical anchor, what happens to you when you're really nervous. And so um, if the answer is, well, um, I work with a lot of singers, and a lot of times they say, well, my my neck and my shoulders feel really tense, and it's hard for me to breathe correctly, and it's hard for me to make the correct sounds, then one of the suggestions I make in the hypnotherapy is you imagine that you're performing and your shoulders feel loose and warm and you're able to breathe easily and things like that. So that if you do this a number of times, then when you actually do perform, that suggestion is in your subconscious mind and you're like, oh, well, I do kind of feel relaxed because the brain is very flexible and and adaptive. So 
I have found that it's been really, really effective for um, musicians who have performance anxiety, especially really debilitating performance anxiety. The trick is kind of like chiropractic. <laughs> you can't just do it once and sort of be set. So what I often do with people, um, because I'm not out to make money as a hypnotherapist, but I'll make them a little recording that they can listen to every night as they're falling asleep or maybe three or four times a week um, so that they begin to get those suggestions in their mind. So, hmm. I'd be interesting to hear, in- interested to hear one of those recordings, just like, what do you do with your voice and that kind of thing to to help people get in that state. Yeah, um, well, you know, there are different types of hypnotherapy, and I'm trained in Ericksonian hypnotherapy, and Erickson was a psychologist who would use stories and metaphors. So he wouldn't actually say, um, you feel calm. He would just tell a story, kind of like an Aesop fable or something, and so the subconscious mind would sort of get it, you know, sort of like a parable. I don't really do that. What I do with musicians is... First, get them very relaxed and sort of walk them through um, kind of a breathing exercise and then a progressive body relaxation. You're wide awake. I mean, you never fall asleep. You hear everything I'm saying. And then when you're really deeply relaxed, what I like to do actually is walk you through a performance experience. And so if we've had an interview before the hypnotherapy session, then I'll sort of know where you perform, are you going to be um, in an auditorium on a stage, what your instrument is, what kind of music you'll be playing. And if you've told me all the things you don't want to happen, you hate when your hands are sweaty and, and you start to criticize yourself and then you have a memory slip and then you can't get back on, what I do in the hypnotherapy is flip all of those around into positive comments. I notice my hands are warm and, and I feel confident and secure and I notice that I'm able to focus. And so I just kind of walk you through like a, a 10 or 15 minute sample performance wrapping up with that moment where we walk off stage and we're sort of processing what just happened because for many musicians that's where the critical mind really kicks them in the butt and really says ah you just really messed that up so I continue sort of positive affirmations depending on what you know your thing is about you know I I really did my best and I had something special to communicate and I did that effectively and I I feel kind of pumped up and people are shaking my hand and congratulating me and I'm believing them (laughs) because most of us do that oh if you only knew Um, so and then we sort of go back to the relaxation and then I bring them back out but your question about what to do with your voice I start talking just like this but as we work more with the hypnotherapy then what helps is if I do what I'm doing now and I breathe in between sentences where you wouldn't normally expect. Because for some reason, that sort of confuses the brain into relaxing and not paying too much attention. So you certainly don't have to sound like <laughs> smooth talker, cocktail lounge singer, <laughs> but it does help. I mean, if I, if I had an abrasive voice, I don't think that would be very helpful. Yeah. Your, your voice is very relaxing, so, <laughs> yeah, I think mine would be, I, I don't know if I Anybody can that. learn to do it. Um, what, ha- what helps is to speak from the diaphragm so that you can speak really softly like I'm doing now, and you put your, your mouth really close to the 
microphone like I'm doing now. And then breathe the way I said, where you just sort of break up the sentences so they're not in predictable sentence structure. And for some reason, it just sort of lets the brain... I've been hypnotized a lot. That was part of my training. And I noticed as soon as somebody would start to do that, I just drifted off into blissful relaxation land because I wasn't really listening. You don't have to pay attention to what the hypnotherapist is saying because the subconscious mind will hear anyway. So you can drift off into, Hmm. you know, happy rainbow land and that should be fine. Hmm. (laughs) When you're doing that kind of thing, can you change even bigger things if people, I guess, I'm not sure what an example that would be, but like, could you make someone a better composer Beyond yeah, I mean, what? I think what sounds like a, a big thing might be a very small tweak because I think uh, everyone would have a different idea of what better composer means. If you want to be a better composer, that means you're here and you want something to be different. Well, what is that thing? And so if that thing is to be more uninhibited or to be more creative or to be more... Um, hypnotherapy works really well for procrastinators because that's a hidden symptom of anxiety, by the way. We procrastinate doing what we're really just not sure we'll do really well. So it can help manage your time, or it can help with procrastination, things like that. What I usually find with people I'm working with with hypnotherapy is they come in session one and they say, um, I have this thing. Um, let's use your example. I want to be a better composer. And I say, okay, well, let's let's figure out what that means. And they say, well, I'm really anxious about my creative process. And okay, so we're going to work on anxiety with a creative process. And then we work on that for a couple weeks. And then they come back in for the next interview. And, and something has shifted because the subconscious mind adapts and works with what it's getting. And they it's like peeling layers off of an onion because the next week they'll come in and say, you know, it's not really that I'm anxious about myself as, as a creative person. I, I actually don't feel like I should even be a composer, you know, because... Uh, Years ago, my teacher told me I had no talent. And we, oh, okay. So then we start working on self-esteem. It really doesn't have anything to do with creativity. It has to do with how you perceive yourself. Well, then they come back in and just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And you finally get to the core of the, the fear or the concern or the issue. And very often, it's something very big and basic like fear of disapproval or fear of loss of love or fear of disappointing someone. So, But it takes a while to get to that point. So with somebody who wants to be a better composer, for example, we would work to sort of see what what does that really mean? And what is it that you would like to shift very subtly in your mind that would help you uh, open up some more of those avenues. So I love it because it's so deep and existential. And yet, I, as because I'm not a psychologist, I don't feel like I'm messing with anyone's mind. I'm just sort of taking what they tell me and suggesting the positive flip side of that when I talk to them in hypnosis. Sure. So when you've been hypnotized, I guess if it's not too personal, um, like what kind of things have you, has that helped you with? Um, You know, my favorite topic for self-hypnosis is being open to change, which seems very sort of broad and nebulous. But I notice that my the blocks that I have personally are less about 
performance anxiety, for example, and more about resisting change. You know, uh, maybe I'm afraid to take this new job because it means leaving all these other people behind. So I really like um, either from another hypnotherapist, or I've made my own um, self-hypnosis CDs, which, by the way, anybody can do, right? You can (laughs) record yourself talking. It's a little annoying to hear your own voice. But I like suggesting to myself that anything's possible. It sounds super foo-foo new agey, but gosh, it really helps me. Anything's possible. I can create any kind of future I want. I'm comfortable letting go of all attachments. I even sometimes imagine attachments that I have to ideas or people or things or jobs and I imagine little strings and I'm cutting the strings and they're like balloons that float away and when I come out of that I feel I mean it's completely psychological but I feel free and light and I feel like I don't have to worry about anything I can do anything I want because change is natural and change is inevitable and change is the only thing we can be sure of so that's kind of a long answer to your question, hmm. but that's, no, that's... kind of what I like to do with myself. Hmm. <laughs> well, and the talking about like making your own CDs for yourself, I I remember reading something about like how psychologically we when we say something, that just makes us believe it slightly more. <laughs> like if if you say like I am a good pianist, then just the act of like saying that out loud right. would kind of just make you change your brain in yeah. even, even if it's just a slight way even if you don't think you believe that <laughs> act as if yeah i think a belief is a thought you keep thinking that's really what i think i think you know we form our beliefs from our thoughts sometimes we form them consciously especially if we want to change something. I am a good pianist or I I am a decent musician. But sometimes those beliefs were planted by people in our childhood and we replay those thoughts without really knowing it, especially negative things about ourselves. Oh, I'm no good at improvising or whatever. And we're not aware of it. But I do think that we can retrain the brain by framing those thoughts differently. And there are studies that suggest that when you say something out loud, it it is more meaningful. Also, when you write it down, it sticks somehow rather than just uh, randomly thinking throughout the day, hey, I'm good enough, I'm smart (laughs) enough, you know, or whatever. But I do think that's true. I think that that's how we form those neural pathways are with our thoughts, consciously or unconsciously. And if those thoughts are formed consciously and we're forming the same thought over and over again, it's like breaking a path in the snow, which is my favorite metaphor for Minnesotans, right? So it just snowed five feet and you have to walk down to the store and you you go out in this snow for the first time and it's really hard breaking that path. But when you come back from the store, you can step in the footsteps that you made previously so it's a little bit easier. But then you realize you forgot something. So you go back to the store and each time you go back and forth, pretty soon you wear a path down so that it's very easy. You could run back and forth to the store because you've carved a big path in the snow. And that's how we build new neural pathways, either through attention or by neglecting something. And so if I think um, I'm a creative person, I'm a good improviser, and I sort of give myself reasons to believe that, that's the path in the snow that I'm carving in my brain. And if I write those things down, and if I say them out loud, it just makes them more powerful. Hmm. Yeah, it is pretty exciting, like, seeing 
all the research happening with like people realizing that the brain is actually more flexible and yeah than people used to think I guess yeah see I grew up in the I grew up shiny in the day and age where they said that your brain was hardwired by the time you were 30 so you know old dog new tricks don't even worry about it and it's just so not true, and that drives me crazy when people make these declarations like, you know, egg yolks will kill you, and then we all follow that for 10 years, and we find out it's false. So um, now we're finding out the exact opposite is true, and we're learning new skills and new things to the very end of our lives, which is why we should never think we're too old to learn a new skill or pick up a new instrument or try something new or learn a new language. If anything, that keeps our minds healthy because we're continuing to build those neural pathways and we're not getting stuck in a particular rut. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think just for composers too, it's like, it is pretty easy to get in the rut of doing the same kind of composing all the time. So yeah, I don't know. For me, at least I need to branch out Every so often, sometimes use a computer, sometimes use just pencil and paper, and maybe even just like have a jam session with someone and don't write anything down or record. Absolutely. And sometimes it's uh, composing in a different place, in a different location. When your mind gets very used to sort of a, of course, ritual is a good thing. I think ritual is a very good thing, but sometimes we can get in a rut. So sometimes just shifting your physical location or your emotion or the way you're sitting is a way of physically shifting your perspective. Because I think when we're in a rut of any kind, what we forget that we can do is shift our perspective, either really subtly in our minds or physically, you know, move from the computer to the pencil and paper or whatever. I My father was a Broadway actor for many years. And when he got too old and decrepit, his words to act, he became a theater producer and a director. And one of the, th- uh, the theaters that he worked for in Louisville, Kentucky, was a theater in the round. And that's, of course, when the audience sits on all four sides of the stage. And <clears throat> when he would direct, he would sit on a different side each day. So one day he'd sit on the south side and he'd direct his actors. The next day he'd come in and have a completely different perspective. And he used to say it was a completely different show when he would see it from that perspective. And that would help him work out the blocking and all that. And that was an old story. But I think about that often when I am practicing or improvising or doing something creative. Is there a way that I can watch what I'm doing from a different side of the stage. Because, you know, humans, I think we forget that we're capable of metacognition. I mean, we're capable of thinking about how we're thinking, and which blows my mind anyway, yeah. which means that we're capable of observing ourselves thinking. So if you step back out of that first person perspective and observe you, the composer, and imagine that you're observing yourself from a different perspective, either mentally or figuratively or literally or whatever, then um, sometimes that shift of perspective can make a a huge difference in just new ideas or fresh perspectives or um, just thinking about things in a different way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, going to be going on tour uh, around the country here in Australia and Taiwan and part of that is going to be me like writing songs with other people and in different locations and like learning from them hopefully their styles and so 
yeah, I'm excited for that kind of fabulous. I think that one of the greatest things we can do is travel. It doesn't have to be as exotic as you're yeah. going to do, but as soon as you start to interact with people from a different culture or from a different mindset, that really helps because you're listening to or observing perspectives that you have never thought about because it's outside of your, maybe, of your realm of experience. So that's what I love about traveling and collaborating with other people is that they've grown up with different parents and different cultures with maybe a different language and have a completely different perspective about how they're approaching art or anything. So that sounds like a great Um, trip. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. And so you were saying you were in in Taiwan. I was, yeah. Yeah, what, what were you doing there? I was judging piano exams for the International Piano Performance Examination Committee, something like that, which is a kind of a a, a national standardized exam program. I was there for a month and I listened to, I can't tell you how many hundreds of um, young people come and they play repertoire pieces and I adjudicate them. And it was so great because I was actually in seven different towns. So I spent the month traveling from place to place in Taiwan and meeting new people and learning about new cities and new cultures and customs. And luckily I had an interpreter (laughs) with me (laughs) because there are no street signs in English, FYI. So yeah. yeah, so it was really a great experience. Usually when I travel, I think when most people travel and they're full time employed people, you're only there for a week or two, you know, and you learn what you can and then you leave. But when you're actually living there for a month and you're living among these people and um, you're eating their food and you're learning their language, I learned more about that culture than anywhere else I've ever been just because I was immersed in it for a month. So it was a really great time. It was the best food I've ever had anywhere. Oh, FYI. Wow. All right. I'm excited. (laughs) Did you have any suggestions of places I should go or music I should try to Well, depending on where you are, the three big cities I was in were um, Taipei, Taichung, and Kaohsiung. And those are the three main cities with a lot of museums and attractions and music. Um, Taipei, of course, has the most stuff for you to see. It's huge. Well, Taichung, too. I really like Taichung. It's a smaller city. Um, I remember going to an art museum, and they had a jade exhibit. And it was basically jade from the beginning of time to the present day. And it absolutely blew my mind. There's a lot of open markets where you can buy antiques and crafts and things like that. Um, There's a lot of... I actually had to hunt uh, for um, indigenous music because everything is so westernized. Um, There was a pretty active jazz scene, as I recall. So Hmm. yeah, I think you're going to have a great time. Yeah. So you you sent me a couple recordings of Chopin mm-hmm. and Liszt yeah. you, that you played. Yeah. Yeah, do those composers have kind of a special place in for you? You know, they do, although I'll say that actually I was just um, hunting for short pieces that were easy to upload. My favorite composers are Brahms and Bach, especially Brahms. He's my sort of desert island composer. Mm. But I've um, heard that from many pianists. Yeah, but. I think it's, it's a... 
Yeah. Brahms is a special, either he grabs your heart or he doesn't. I've had students who say, I've listened to all these pieces you've had me listen to, and I can't stand this composer. <laughs> and I think, what's wrong with you? No, I don't think that. But um, there's a warmth to Brahms that I really love. There's um, something I appreciate about Brahms that I hear in Chopin too, not so much list, is this composing within such firm structures that the emotion, part of the emotion that I feel is not this gushing out of emotion like you get with in, in my repertoire, um, Liszt and Schumann and Scriabin and some of those composers. With Brahms, the emotional content I can almost hear kind of pressing up against the structural parameters. And for me, the emotion comes from the fact that it's not gushing forth, that there's something contained and internal about it, which is why I think most of Brahms to me sounds bittersweet, even the most extroverted Brahms. I can feel that there are these boundaries that I'm pressing up against and I'm challenging those boundaries rather than just pouring over. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's why Brahms warms my heart. I feel that there's a humanity in there that I don't hear in the same way in other composers. Hmm. Do you, what's the difference in the experience of performing Brahms versus hearing someone else play for you? I don't know. That's a great question. I think, um, (laughs) well, for me, what's hard is that I have these very personal responses to Brahms. So I try hard as a teacher not to impose my interpretation on other people, right? I don't want to crank out little mini versions of me. (laughs) Wouldn't that be fun? Um, so to me, that's basically the challenge. I do think there are some composers, though, maybe not Brahms, where it really, it they are performers, composers. In other words, I do think there are some music, it's so much more gratifying to perform than to listen to, if that mm. makes sense. It does. Uh, you listen to I've it. I've had the like, opposite, uh, I, I think, oh, with yes. um, Arvo Pert. Yes. Um, we play, we listen to his piece, fratres or however you say it in orchestra in high school and but performing it was not that fun (laughs) it's you know very minimal playing one note per measure yeah uh and i the whole time i was thinking like well i really loved listening to this piece but performing fascinating but what what would you say is the the flip side of that that you think is more fun to perform than to listen to uh well, I think it depends. I, I, I personally think that sh- the piano music of Schumann is more fun to perform than it is to listen to. Now, half of your listeners are going to go ballistic because <laughs> Schumannophiles are just as passionate as Brahmsophiles. Um, I think the same is true of late Scriabin. I think it's so raw and bloody, and it's just fun to get in it and just grab fistfuls of notes and throw them up in the air. And, but then when you're listening to it, after a while, I get irritated easily. I, I, my nerves are I just like, yeah, I just, you know, I don't want to listen to this in my car. <laughs> yeah. So. It starts you, like, driving faster and... Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, a tradition on the show is that we have a question chain going of... From one guest to the next. Okay. Uh, So the last guest, Eric Ostrom, had a question for you. 
he was wondering, what's a kind of music you want to make, but you don't know how to? Oh, what's the kind of music that I want to make, but I don't know how to? Here's my answer. I want, I don't know how to do this, but I want to make a junk gamelan out of found instruments, like terracotta flower pots and and things that I find in junkyards and old metal car fenders. And I want to somehow collect all of this beautiful junk and put it together and paint it and make it crazy. And I want to perform and improvise music on a found object gamelan. And I'm not quite sure how to go about doing that. And I'm not quite sure it would sound (laughs) (laughs) great, but I just love the idea of collecting junk that makes beautiful colors. That's my answer. That sounds really fun. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Oh, Oh, you should do that. I think so too. And it would be just satisfying finding all these random pieces of junk, but then you could probably actually order them in pitches. You could. Because <laughs> why, why not? They might sound totally different <laughs> timbres, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Cool. Uh, so would you have a ne- uh, question for my next guest? Mm. Um, who is a is composer? Probably will be a composer. Okay. I'm not sure. Because uh, actually the next, the question will go to the next season which will start in the fall so (laughs) okay my question would be what is the most outrageous thing you've ever done or thought to bring about a sense of creativity when you're stuck you know if you're um, trying to compose or you're trying to perform and you just what is the most outrageous thing that has worked for you that the rest of us might not have thought about hmm Oh, that's good. How would you answer that, do you think? Most outrageous thing. One time I did a whole uh, (laughs) improvisation set um, just using my body conducting. I didn't actually make a sound. I stood in front of a group of students and basically did interpretive dance like a conductor on crack to get them to make different sounds. And as someone who's not a dancer... That was pretty outrageous for me. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, Vanessa, it's been a pleasure having you over. And yeah, I'm excited to hear what people think of your episode because I think there's a lot of good good pieces of advice for people. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Dr. Vanessa Cornette-Mertada. For links to some of the things we talked about, like the Psycho and Jaws videos, visit ComposerQuest.com slash Vanessa. I'll also have a link to Vanessa's hypnotherapy and meditation podcast called The Project for Mindfulness and Meditation. You can always get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at ComposerQuest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Stay tuned next week for the final episode of Season 6. It'll be a special roundtable discussion with the creative team behind the feature film Twin Cities. We'll talk about what goes into composing and sound designing a feature film, and what directors are looking for in scores. Now I'll leave you with a recording I did after my talk with Vanessa. I was inspired to let go of my normal mode of, this music has to be perfect and meaningful, and I just started messing around on guitar. 
to see what would come out. I dusted off my old loop pedal, and I was reminded of how nice it is to improvise over a backdrop of sound. So now you'll get a glimpse into my unfiltered stream of conscious improvising. At a certain point during the recording, my mind wandered to thoughts of my dog Dylan, who we recently had to put to sleep. So Dylan, this one is for you. It's kind of sloppy, but you probably wouldn't care either way. Mm -hmm. 